Today, we are so lucky. I have an amazing co-host and a wonderful guest. Um, Kathleen Mercury is here. Yay. Hey, Kathleen. Hey, Donald. Um, I'll let you decide whether you are the co-host or the guest. Uh, since our <laughs> since our other voice is also the host of another podcast. Uh, hey, Jeff. Hey, Donald. Or do you prefer Jeffrey Engelstein? Should I be more formal? Uh, if you would refer to me as Mr. Jeffrey Engelstein throughout the podcast, that would be good. I, I will do that. Mr. Engelstein, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll let Jeffrey start. If you could please, sir, let us know or let our listeners know where you can be found talking on the internet and being uh, semi-social. So I am the uh, the co-host of the Ludology podcast, um, which is about an hour-long podcast um, every other week when we talk about game design and various topics related to uh, to board games. Uh, sometimes we do video games, pinball, slot machines, all kinds of different things. Um, and I'm also uh, on the Dice Tower podcast um, every other episode or so doing the game tech segment there, which... Uh, in which I talk about sort of math and science and history and how those all relates to games and psychology and, and, and different topics like that. So, uh, th- those are my main media outlets. Um, I also have designed a bunch of titles. I guess I've got close to 10 games out now. Um, the Hooray. latest being, um, latest two being the expanse based on the sci-fi, uh, channel TV series and, um, pit crew. Um, which is from Stronghold Games, which is a quick little real-time game about uh, getting your car back out on the racetrack. Right. Um, And your game tech segments, uh, if people don't have the time to listen to all the glory that is the Dice Tower, uh, those get filtered in on your same feed for the Ludology podcast, too. Yes. Um, And I've also just recently collected them in a book, uh, which is um, available, will be available soon on Amazon called uh, Game Tech, G-A-M-E-T-E-K. Uh, so you can get a it there. A little more difficult to listen to. but uh, yes. yes, but it makes excellent <laughs> bathroom reading, so. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, okay, then Kathleen, uh, well, you, of course, co-host here for the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, yes. um, but you have games going out to be published as well. I do. They haven't been officially announced yet, but uh, one's with IDW and one will be with Colossal. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. So, um, you know, just after teaching game design for so many years, you know, <laughs> you know, the whole, you know, those who can't do teach, well, I've been doing it all along, but it's nice after so many years to finally see some projects make it to fruition. And it's it's kind of addictive. Like once you get one out there, then you're like, more, more, more. So it's a lot of fun. Excellent. So, Jeff, I'm sorry, Mr. Jeffrey Engelstein, <laughs> uh, this expanse, expanse game intrigues me quite a bit because I really like the books. And what what aspect of the expanse does it sort of pull into the game? Yeah, this is specifically based on the TV series, not the books, although I was a big fan of the books when I was approached with the opportunity to do this game. Um, so I kind of... The, the TV series, also excellent. Yes. And um, uh, so this is sort of a strategic game. So it, it's uh, the, the board encompasses the whole solar system, and you're playing one of the four major factions uh, from the, the book and TV series, um, either the UN, the MCR from Mars, or the, uh, the Outer Planet Alliance, or the Protogen Corporation. And you're really trying to influence certain bases around, um, the solar system. And it's, um, it's sort of a Cold War situation. There's, there's a lot of posturing and there's, you know, people moving their fleets and military units around, but there's very little actual fighting in the, in the books and on the show. Um, so it, it, it's, it's sort of an area control game based 
a little bit around some of the mechanics in Twilight Struggle and in some of the coin games. So there's, um, there's cards that have actions and events and, and a track, but we sort of took that and we extended it into, uh, four players. Um, and some of the key characters come in as events or, or as, um, the Rosinante is a ship that sort of bounces between player control, um, as, as the game goes on. So I'm really excited about the way that it came out. Um, and it was, I enjoyed it because it was the first license game that I had done. Um, and also the first time that somebody actually like hired me and gave me, wanted me to design a game and gave me a deadline. Uh, so, um, I happened to be really busy at the time when, uh, whiz kids approached me, but I felt like if I was going to try to be a professional game designer of, to a certain extent that I needed to be able to actually make a game on demand and not just, you know, work on it for five years until I got tired of it, which is my usual design method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I had that similar experience with, um, uh, the one game from Colossal, and you know, I had to make significant thematic changes, which meant I had to really rework it mechanically, and it was pretty much on my own as far as the direction I wanted to go to. And I'm someone who likes feedback; I like a lot of input, and um, it was basically on my own to figure out what I was going to do. And it was a really good experience for me in the end. Super frustrating, and I'm not done yet, but really good experience to have that total different approach to designing the game as opposed to, like I said, what you were talking about where you just do it and then, okay, I'm done with it. Now I want to show it to people. So it definitely pushes you creatively in different directions. Yeah. Constraints are always good things to have. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, yeah. Once you learn how to deal with them, because when I was, when I first started working fire and crown, it was like, Oh, here's somebody else's world. Congratulations. You now have to deal with, just their stuff and, and work other people through the projects. And I didn't know what I was doing. N- now it sounds like I probably would do a better job uh, at that kind of thing. I hope. But uh, back then I was very confused because I was like just fresh out of college and had no clue what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So, but that's yeah. the best way sometimes, you know, when you know so much, then it's really easy to overthink things. Whereas, you know, when you're young, you're like, you know, <laughs> let's just, let's just see what happens and run with it. And I think there's a sort of purity that can come from that inexperience where you're not like, Oh wait, this game did this and this game did this, this game did this. You know, you can just kind of focus on what does this need to be and go from there. Right. Well, do you, do you have any other projects that you can talk about or any games that you've played lately that you'd like to discuss? I guess that's where we are right now. Um, well, I did just finally get a copy of Game of Thrones Catan, which I'm excited about. I got to play it twice at uh, Board Game Geeks convention, and I do work for Catan. I did work for Catan over the summer, so um, I'm certainly biased, obviously, but I do like it. Um, and actually, I will say my boyfriend really likes it, and he's not the biggest Catan player, but with the um, thematic elements, there's different player characters that help you. There's wildlings trying to breach the wall, and you have to build guards to protect against that. So you, And the more you build, the more wildlings come. So it, it adds a whole sort of level of tension that's, you know, that goes outside of individual players themselves to, you know, kind of fighting the game board itself a bit. And so I'm really excited uh, to have a copy of that. And that's one that when we go to my lake house for New Year's Eve, that one's definitely going to hit the table. So, And then I bought a bunch of escape games, um, the exit games at uh, BGG. I've never played them, and I've got three sitting waiting for my nieces and nephew to come for the holidays. So I'm excited about those. Are they part of the first three or the second three? The first three. Mm. Those are We've got those at the library. Uh, they're pretty neat. Uh, we're still trying to deal with how the fact that you know, they're, they're sort of done once you've cut them up into pieces. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was talking with somebody about how they didn't do that, um, but I think it was and then but some, yeah, um, like just to try to save them for multiple plays. But then also the unlocked games. I I, I don't I haven't played any of those, but those apparently don't get destroyed and can lend themselves to replayability. Right. Well, how about you, Jeff? I'm sorry. Any? How about you, Mr. Jeffrey Engelstein? <laughs> I think we can just go with Jeff from now on. That's fine. I will. I will, right. I will allow it. Uh, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, actually, for a change, got a couple of new games to the table. Um, a few weeks ago, we had uh, a party here at the house, um, and we had. Uh, uh, I, I, it's it's. I traditionally have these really gigantic parties and, and I usually don't get to play anything sometimes. So, mm-hmm. so I was have I kind of scaled it mm. back a little bit. So I actually got to play some games. So I played, um, the Pulsar 2849, the new CGE game. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which was really interesting, had a lot going on. Um, I was a little concerned that it's got too much going on. I mean, I, I hesitate to say that after only one play, but, um, the, it just, there was just, so many different options and so many different paths and strategies and things that you could do that it, um, I, I could see kind of getting a little bit lost in, in looking at all of the myriad of possibilities and say, okay, this is definitely the path that I want to take here. So I just radically narrowed my vision on it, cut out large mm-hmm. chunks of the game. It's like, okay, I'm just going to focus on this little corner of the world here. So, um, and it, it resets, you know, there's, there's so much variability and variability can be a good thing, but I, it just seemed like there was so much variability between all the different texts that possibly could be available and stuff like that, that, um, it, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much you can take from game to game and sort of judging it, but I would certainly be interested in, in trying it again and seeing how that went. And that, that was which game again? Pulsar 2849, Pulsar. I think. And again, and I also played a game that's a little bit further in the future, Kepler 3042. <laughs> I assume 3042 is the year in that one. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, so you like games that have apparently a word a, 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 some sort of space object and then a number. Yes. That was my little theme. <laughs> uh, and that's from Renegade. And that, that had some really interesting mechanics. Um, it was super duper tight. Um, I felt like you, you really had to optimize what you were doing. And it was one of these games where it just ends just, you know, you feel totally under the gun to, to like, you don't have enough actions to get everything done that you want to get done and you have to kind of pick and choose. Yeah. So it's, it's very, very tight that way. So again, I'd be interested in trying that one again. Um, but, uh, it was, you know, cause you really, you you have to really know what you're doing. So by, you know, when even those, if you waste those first few turns, you're in a, in a big hole, I think. So, um, and then we played, um, a weird Japanese game called rescue polar bears. It's a little <gasps> co-op game with these very cute I little polar bear one. families. Oh, I oh, played I mean, that at BGG Con. What did you think? I thought it was really, I mean, the, the, it was cute, but uh, honestly, from a co-op standpoint, it didn't really do much for the three of us that were playing. Um, we, we did oh, not win, but um, it, it's, it just was seemed like it was something a little bit missing. Well, to me, it seemed like in that game that whenever they, when they came across a problem from a design standpoint, they added something to the game instead of taking something out. And at the end of the day, it's not really about saving polar bears. It's about sailing around collecting your data. Right. And then as soon as they have your data, you're like, okay, polar bears, see ya! And like, <laughs> off you go. Which in some ways is probably really reflective of reality. But, you know, you're just thinking, if I'm saving polar bears, like, I want to save all the polar bears. You know, not leave a whole bunch behind because right. I got what I needed out of it. 
Yeah. So that yeah, was, I, yeah, the component. I agree with that too. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it, you know, the polar bears were just sort of annoying. They just sort of got in the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, uh, you, you never want to, a game about saving polar bears to have the polar bears just be annoying. That's, that's probably well, not a good lead. My favorite thing about the game is the name because it's not saving polar bears; it's saving polar bears data and temperature. And so, whenever I refer to the game, <laughs> well, it's like, no, no, you got to give that polar to bears, the data Japanese, and temperature. The Japanese roots of it, yeah. Well, but that's what, that's what I'm calling it. But the one thing also that's kind of notable about that game is when I was I was reading through the rules, and I ex- and and they're really badly translated. Like I feel yeah. bad, honestly, if somebody buys this. I mean, and I think looking at the box, the polar bears look sad, and I'm glad about that because I don't want somebody <laughs> to think this is going to be a happy ending kind of game because it's not really. Um, but the thing about the game rules is they're not well translated. And I accidentally, when I was reading through the rules, flipped them over instead of opening to the next page. And I was halfway down the page before people said, wait a minute, I think you missed something. And that's how like incoherent the rules were to kind of understand at first, I thought. Because I'd, I'd, even, I'd read half a page more before somebody realized, wait a minute, we think there's a problem here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I mean, and that goes, I don't want to side track too much in game design but a couple of weeks before i played the polar bear game i played another game whose name is completely escaping me that ostensibly was about building a wildlife refuge Mm -hmm. um and it had this really funky mechanic where you had to pick these cards and you got to do all the cards and the empty cards that were next to you um if nobody else picked them but it was you know you you had these great animals you could collect and stuff like that but winning the game had nothing to do with setting up a wildlife refuge. You didn't right. feel like you were doing that in the end. So it, it kind of fell flat for all of us. Yeah. So it's important to stay true so, to your theme. Yeah. So you're, you'll need the house rule, the snot out of uh, polar bears, da- saving polar bears data and temperature. Or use the cute little polar it. bears and ice flows and everything for another game. Yes. Like a new version of, Hey, that's my fish. Exactly. <laughs> hey, that's my polar bear. Oh. That actually would be fun. You could work those two together, and I'd play that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I've been playing. But other than that, I've been doing a ton of playtesting with new projects, which I can't talk about. But, um, uh, you know, I've been working with my, my kids, especially because my daughter's um, been home from school now. Uh, so we've been working together. So a lot of the – those that don't know, a lot of the games that I've designed have been with as a whole family, um, which is always fun. So uh, – uh, so it's we always try to cram in a bunch of playtests when they're here. They're they're my most honest playtesters. They are more than happy mm-hmm. to uh, to say that whatever we're doing is a piece of garbage, which so is what you're looking more for. In since, yeah, have have they become more honest since they started doing their own design work with you? Do you think? No, nah, they started pretty honest. <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing we did was joint. I mean, I never designed by myself. Um, even for the very very first game designs I did were. Um, uh, first one it was with my son, and then the second one was with all three uh, all three of us, my son and my daughter and myself with space cadets. Oh, that's cool. really cool. So we've always kind of worked together. Mm-hmm. My boyfriend's a game designer, and we have very, very, very different approaches. And it usually ends up with me being very fussy and frustrated about something. And then finally, like, but then he, the, he you know, his approach, my approach kind of crash together. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, wait, I think we see the hole here, you know, where, where to go. Because we had, there's one game that started off with him, and it was just, it wasn't working. I'm like, this is boring. This isn't fun. And I can't, I don't want to play this. And, on and on and on and finally I'm like what if we just did blah 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 and it was like oh 
and it all came together after that. So, yeah, I mean, I want to design more and more games with him, but it's also sometimes where it's like, I know what we're going to get into, and we also want to be able to live together. (laughs) It's good and it's bad. I mean, it's, 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 uh, in our experience, I mean, I, uh, it's, yeah, you sometimes run into these, these situations where you, you're coming at a problem from totally different sides and have different solutions. Uh, we found that just playtesting usually helps resolve mm-hmm. that, um, and see which one is better. But, uh, you know, uh, with, I, I like having co-designers because I always hit these, um, rough spots or, or just, you know, or I just don't have the motivation to move on. And usually, um, that's, that's when, uh, you know, having a co-designer, they can kind of pick up the slack and, and get you through that 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 patch and and vice versa so i think it's i always enjoy having another person or two working on the project and and it helps having them locally because eric and i uh eric dewey and i have you know done some design work together but since he's in oklahoma and i'm in south carolina it doesn't feel like we get the kind of we don't feed off of each other's excitement or you know or despair quite as much as we would if we were in the same area st louis is on the way Sort of. Just put that in mind. <laughs> okay. Keep that in mind. Um, so <laughs> Don't look uh, at a map. It'll be fine. Uh, Jeffrey, you, you mentioned uh, designing with your family. And what kind of impact has that had on them to start designing games? Um, well, I think it's had things both, you know, tangible and, and intangible, I hope. I mean, one of the things um, that I wanted to do for them – so I, I – uh, uh, when I was in high school, um, way back when computers were first being invented, uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I wrote uh, games for the Apple II computer, um, and actually got some published in high school. And, so cool. um, you know, that was a great experience for me of being able to do something and see it on the store shelves. And, um, so I, 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 then, you know, in college and, and, and beyond, I knew so many people. I met them that, that wanted to do something creative, you know, wanted to, you know, whether it's design a product or write a book or make a game or whatever. But there was always this kind of mystique uh, that between, you know, the, uh, the writer, you know, is sort of on the pedestal and that's not something that I could ever do or I, I can never get something published or whatever it is. And, um, I really wanted to, show my kids that that was something that they could really do. And, and that was something that, you know, whether it was a a game or something else that if you just sit down and and work on something that you could go through the whole process and see it in the game store or sold in Barnes and Noble or, or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, but also learn that it's, you know, that there's a lot of hard work that's involved that, you know, there's that initial rush of inspiration, but the, the polish that's required and all that. So, um, I was really, really happy that they, they learned that. And I hope that that's something that they take with them, um, you know, through their careers is that if they just, you know, want to do something that the best way to do it is just to sit down and put the work into it and do it. Um, and at the same time, it also helped, um, you know, when they were applying to college, um, they were in high school, mostly, uh, middle school and high school. We did a lot of our game design. They, um, so they took the games in, they submitted that as part of their interviews. They did, uh, college interviews. They did, uh, for their, both wrote their college essays about doing the game designs and going to, you know, game shows and demoing them and seeing their, their work actually, you know, out there in the world and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I know like with my daughter's experience at the administration, at the, the, um, uh, admissions office, you know, told her afterwards that it, they were really 
impressed and excited. You know, she came in actually with Dice Duel, Space Cadets Dice Duel. She showed up their interview with that and they played a couple of turns during her interview <laughs> and had fun. That's so, so, cool. uh, so it was really, it's, I, I hope that it's, like I said, that's something that they take with them for their whole lives. Well, did, I did she present them a copy as a bribe to, to help her get into school? Or we sent, they sent copies. Yeah, we sent a copy of the Aries Project of the Emissions Office at, at Firth Bryan, and we sent, and she left the copy of Dice Duel with the Kenyan Emission Office. So I don't know whatever actually happened with it, but, but they're there. So we didn't ask for them back. No. Well, <laughs> they got in. Game- so, right. <laughs> yes, they got in. Yeah. That's so cool. Why teach game design to uh, middle school students? It's a semester long class, and right. So their games are, you know, due tomorrow after. You know, this all this time working on it. And the, the hardest thing that I have to do at this point is convince kids that they were successful because, you know, we spend, you know, 10 weeks or so developing their prototype, but they've gone through four iterations of playtesting and feedback and everything. So the games have, you know, improved vastly, but it's really hard sometimes for them to see it as successful because they tend to focus on what doesn't work or how it might be kind of boring or all that. But you know, so getting them to see all that work and, you know, trying to get them to translate this to other experiences where you may never design a game again. But if you can take on some sort of project where you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you have the confidence to take it on and that you trust yourself that you'll figure it out along the way, then there's no telling what you would, you know, that you'll be able to do later on in life. But for right now with my seventh graders, you know, it's a little bit tough sometimes. And, and that's the hard part of the project that I wish I could just make go away where they just all walk out feeling successful. And I'm not, I s- still haven't figured out the magical answer to that one. Yeah, it's, hmm. it's hard. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I teach game design at the college level and you kind of face the same sort of thing as well. Um, you know, just also because of the time frame. Um, I mean, you've, uh, you know, from design game Kathleen that, you know, there's that, there's a lot of kind of distinct phases in a game and there's that first initial burst of creativity and activity and stuff you do. And then there's the, the, the long period of polishing and tuning and tweaking and, uh-huh. and all that stuff. And, um, I find that in most of the classes that I'm teaching, just because it's a one semester class and you want to, you know, you need to do two or three projects. There's only so much polishing that you can teach. It's hard to teach that part of it. And that's right. the part that really makes all the difference. Whereas that, at least for me, that first flush of excitement, you know, that's kind of the easy part in a way. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's hard to show them the whole process and what it really takes to, to, to make a finished product. Yes. But it's still worth doing. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. Okay. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Oh boy, oh boy, it's almost time for the con. I can't wait to do these escape rooms, play the role-playing games, the board games, show off all these cool new coding games. Shush! Yeah, that's the one. No, shush! We're in a library, sir. We most certainly are. It's ShushCon, a games and geekery convention held in Polly's Island, South Carolina at the Walker Monarch Branch Library, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's the best value for gaming in the Carolinas. We'll have the new board game hotness, you know, the good stuff classic in indie rpgs so we'll have dread call of cthulhu trail of cthulhu paranoia savage worlds and dread organized play events like DD, pathfinder society and Shadowrun, as well as war machine hordes iron arena and steamroller events video games like the jackbox party pack artemis overwatch land party and a hearthstone fireside gathering we're a tavern woohoo 
and we're going to have escape room games and custom-made escape rooms. We'll also be hosting a magic draft. And in the finest tradition of Shashkan, we will have a tea party and tea tasting. So we'll have a variety of tasty teas for you to taste and tickle your tonsils. Taste tea? Oh. We will also record segments for on-board games, on RPGs, and the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. So you could be on air if you show up here. We're also going to host our library and trade day again. But this time, we're going to be talking about coding and coding activities for libraries. So if you're a librarian, show up. We're going to focus on coding to play and playing with code. That's March 23rd, starting at 10 a.m. and going until 1 p.m. on that Friday, where we're just going to break out the code and show you how you can bring code into your library in the geekiest way possible. And then, of course, you can stay and play games, games, games. And that's part of the Libraries Ready to Code grant that we just received. Look, that's all good and well, but this is a library. I need you to take it down a couple notches. Oh, yes. Uh, so, Shushcon, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, Polly's Island, South Carolina. Best value in gaming for all the Carolinas. Because it's free. Join us and have fun. Shush. No. Shushcon. And we're back. Once again, I'm Donald Dennis, and I'm here with Kathleen Mercury Woo-hoo. and Mr. Jeffrey Engelstein. And we're going to talk about computational thinking in games or or how they relate to games or, or that kind of thing. Mm. So does anyone here have a good working definition of computational thinking that I didn't just steal from Wikipedia? <laughs> <laughs> well, it can mean a lot of different things, I would suppose. But, I mean, in general, it would... Uh, I, I would, I think about it as, you know, kind of planning out, you know, sort of steps to, uh, in a logical fashion to achieve a goal. It, it sort of feels like the, the scientific method for, um, for other kind of problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you figure out what the problem is, you, you figure out uh, what, what the, the solution would be. And, and then you sort of break it down into parts and make it and make it happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when you're looking at it from, you know, an analog tabletop sort of perspective, you know, looking at it as basically games are in some ways systems of rules that players execute. And so how they execute those rules, how they internalize them um, is, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of the mindset that lends itself to computational thinking. So games are just an embodiment of computational thought. I think we've solved it right there. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, we're done. We're out. Any good recipes <laughs> for the holidays? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the thing is, is when I go online and I say, "Hey guys," of course, going online and asking questions is where you get in your first bit of trouble, right? Uh, <laughs> what games do you think sort of embody computational thinking? The first answer I always get is, "Do you guys have a, a guess on this?" I saw, so I can't. Uh, it has to be Robo Rally, I would guess. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. It's it's Robo Rally, right? Um, because uh, Robo Rally is the hey, you program in your slots for your movements, and you make the robot do the thing, and then and you then watch everything them goes to hell, s- and you spend the next fifteen minutes yelling at your boyfriend because it's his favorite game in the whole world, and it drives you crazy when you just want to see your plan work. I'm Ooh, which which version is his favorite version? 
<laughs> oh, well, because there's a new version. Of, Mark has created every single year at Gen Con for like the last 15, 20 years, um, special scenarios that he runs. I mean, he did a Game of Thrones one that took up like two, three full tables, three dimensionals, whole thing. Um, he's done some <laughs> really intricate scenarios. Robo Rally is his favorite game. And in fact, like, I said one time that he loves it more than me. And I looked at him when I said that and he said, well, I've known it longer. So, <laughs> so <you're> not, <laughs> not kidding. Um and so I like the new one better. Um, and he, it was hard at, not hard at first because he was just so used to the old system. But the thing that I like about the new system where everyone has their own deck is you're guaranteed to see certain cards, which within the old one, there's nothing more frustrating than you're one flag away and you get everything but a left turn or something like that. And, and to me, that's, you know, super frustrating. Um, there are people that, you know, especially for purists, they love that. They love the chaos and trying to make the best out of of what you can. I tend to be more of a make a plan kind of thinker. So I like the new version. In fact, I'm much more likely to play the new version with him than ever play the old version. He made a deck building variant for the old one that he ran. And I really like that. So I was happy to see that in the new version they came up with, basically every player has, it's, you know, more or less deck building. So I am a bigger fan, much bigger fan of the newer version, but yeah, that one led to some fights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I find the biggest problem with the previous editions is that people didn't know how to set up the boards to make it entertaining to play the whole game through. Right. Mm. Um, well, they made it too so. spread apart. You need to have the robots keep coming back, uh, intersecting against each other in order to mm -hmm. make it interesting, right. I think. Yeah. I mean, I've got multiple sets of it, of the first edition and the expansions, and it was always, hey, let's play two boards and maybe do two or three or four flags but you're mm -hmm. going to get back and forth on those two boards. Right. And so that, that was sort of the way we built scenarios. Yeah. But I think that Robo Rally um, and Robo Rally sort of indirectly led to the design of Space Cadets, actually. Um, Ooh. And then, well, I'll tell that story and then I'll circle back on the one I tried to make <laughs> since you seemed sure. interested. Uh, so my wife hates Robo Rally. I enjoy playing mm. Robo Rally. It's not my favorite game in the world, but I'm, I'm always happy to play it. Um, but she's she she does not like that kind of thing. She's not uh, spatial relations is not her uh, her forte. So she just finds it an exercise in, in frustration. And um, but I wanted to do it. So uh, so one of the things that I sat down I was like, well, it'd be really cool if we could make a game where I get to play Robo Rally and she gets to play something that she likes to play. And so <laughs> that ended up becoming Space Cadets, where the navigation station is very similar to Robo Rally in that you draw um, cards uh, that, that have arrows on them of how you're going to move in turn. And you have to play those in a sequence and you have just a certain length of time that you have to put those in there. So it's that puzzle solving aspect. So I can do that yeah. and she could be on, you know, sensors or torpedoes or something else doing a little puzzle that she enjoys doing. So. Uh, so that was, that was my reaction to that. Um, but, um, you know, Robo Rally is, you know, it has the trappings of programming and stuff like that. And in, in a certain sense, it kind of, I guess, teaches programming to, to a limited, limited extent, but it's not really programming. And I, I've done a lot of program, like I, I mentioned in the first part of the show, I did, you know, I used to do computer games for the Apple II and I still do a lot of computer programming and, um, you know, Robo Rally is, uh, it, it's, it's sort of has the trappings of that, but I don't think that, you know, somebody that's good at computer programming may be good at Robo Rally or, or vice versa. I, I don't necessarily see that there's a direct connection there. Um, 
Uh, you well, know. I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, it comes down to when you're just listing, you know, executable functions. Yes. Robo Rally does that. So, so, and because right. it's programmed action, people tend to think of that. But when it comes to computational thinking, it's a much more broader set of skills than just when you get down to the details of what you want to execute in what order. Right. And, you know, there's, there's certainly, um, a number of games that sort of have that programming aspect to them. There's, you know, twin tin bots. We even did that to a certain extent in Dragon and Flagon, where you plan moves in advance and stuff like that. Um, but I think that in essence, I mean, computational thinking is kind of alluded to, you know, if, if you're trying to give somebody some bridging steps to, to learning how to program computers, to me, the critical skill is being able to take a complicated problem and break it down into a simpler sub problems and then stringing those right, together. Right, right. Um, and so if that's kind of your goal, if that's what your, your, your think computational thinking is, and, and I do, I'll be curious to see if you guys do as well, but that really opens up. Obviously there's a ton of games where you have a complex goal that you need to achieve and you need to break okay but i can't do that in one turn i got to do that over six turns or eight turns what steps do i need to do whether i'm doing an engine building game it's okay i i need three stone to do this and so how do i what do i need to do get get three stone and you work your way backwards and to me that's much more translatable into the mindset you have to do when you're sitting down and and working on a computer program Right. Now, I guess I, I sort of buried the lead here, which is sort of why are we talking about this now as opposed to, hey, I thought it was just a, a good topic. Uh, our library applied for and received a, a $25,000 grant to become part of the Ready to Code cohort um, as a library's Ready to Code grant. And what that is, is we are trying to figure out a way to make libraries more useful and engaging in in teaching coding activities or programs, how, how can we show people that they can come in here and they can learn these kinds of uh, skills and that it's a place where they can come and find the resources and sort of make libraries relevant in this aspect a little more publicly, because for the past three years, I've been running, you know, scratch camps and, and other, you know, Google CS first activities. And we taught unity engine one year and we taught them how to make apps and websites and all kinds of things along those lines. And so when this grant came up, I thought, I can't submit the same kind of application that everyone else is going to submit. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, well, we're going to do games. We're going to do game design. Uh, we're going to, you know, bring in a bunch of toys for younger kids. So like the Coda Pillar and things like that that allow people to, uh, young, young children to sort of become familiar with the trappings of code and, you know, sort of the format and or function of it without necessarily teaching them a specific language. Though we are going to hopefully do that for our teens and older teens who come in to the library. And now that we received the grant, I realize I probably probably ought to figure out more exactly what this is besides saying, hey, we're going to buy copies of Robo Rally and Code Monkey Island for all the branches of the library. And so that, that's why I brought you on, Jeff. And Kathleen. Well, you're you're here because you're you're trapped I'm on the kidding. show. I'm we've just got, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just got you listed here specifically, you know. But yes, <laughs> that's kidding. also why kidding. you're here. I'm joking. I'm sorry. I'm joking. Go ahead. <laughs> so, it's in your contract. That's why you're here. Oh, oh that's true. Oh. Work, work, work. Well, actually, so the thing is, is I have my second master's is a master's in educational technology, and I definitely. You know, I mean, I've worked with, you know, taught programming and uh, robotics and everything. And 
there's a reason why I tend to focus on analog gaming um, because I'm much more of if you want to teach coding and the technology teacher at our school is an app she's a wizard in terms of what she can get kids to do um, but for me it's more about those sorts of mindsets that come to being able to understand what exactly you need to do when it comes to programming and coding um, but I'll talk about that because I'll let um, I'll let uh, Mr. Engelstein um, go first in terms of talking about his perspective because I definitely shift more to you know the global sense. But there's a lot of things that you know you can really apply in any board game. I think that can teach those skills and if you and you can model those skills as you teach. But I'll I'll hold back for a sec. Well, yeah. I mean, as I said, I think that there's there's a broad range of stuff, and I think Robo Rally is a bad way to teach kids how to program because it's. Well, now that I think, now that I'm going to say this sentence, I guess this is actually what computer programming is like. It's just filled with frustration and pain. Um, <laughs> but, um, but like, I mean, like I said, it's, you know, it's, you don't have a, a certain number of four next loops that you're allowed to use when you're programming. And then, you know, then you don't have any more in your toolkit. And so you have to make do with what you've got. So, I mean, Robo Rally, there's all these other crazy constraints that it puts on to make it more of a game. And, um, but it's, it's, it's more of kind of, you know, puzzle solving as these, this, these are the tools I have in hand and it's, they're, they're not exactly what I need, but I got to figure out a way to make them work. So I think that that's sort of a different approach. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that you, you may have to draw that connection to the students for the students and say, okay, you know, let, yes, we're playing this, this game where we're building up an engine, you know, whether it's, you know, factory fun or even Agricola or something like that, where you're bringing in certain, um, you know, you, you're bringing in these resources and you're turning them into these resources and then you're buying this thing, which is going to improve your thing, you know, your, your production and you set up a whole engine that cycles things through. Well, that's, that's breaking a big problem down into little problems. And you can say, okay, so if I'm trying to, uh, you know, do a word processor, I have to be able to do a window and then I have to know when I hit a keystroke that it puts a word on there and in order to put a letter there, it has to know how to draw a dot and so on. So you can break it down in, in similar kind of steps and show how that all works together. So I, I, I think that that could be a really interesting approach. There's a wide variety of games that do that and, you know, and that I, I think would fill the bill that would be more entertaining and universally accessible than a robo rally or, or some of the other ones. So I was reading um, before we started talking, I found an article collaborative strategic board games as a site for distributed computational thinking. And basically what these researchers did, Matthew Berland and Victor Lee, what they did was they observed groups of uh, college students playing pandemic and what they were doing is they were looking for specific computational thinking skills that you see during pandemic. And the reason why they pick pandemic specifically is that as a co-op game, players articulate out loud their strategies, what they're going to do. There's a lot more discussion between players about the best course of action. So you can really see and observe these computational skills um, while they're playing. And so the, the things that they were looking for were, you know, conditional logic, like if then statements. And you see that when people were planning out their move, well, if we did this, then this would happen. Um, debugging, like, okay, that didn't work or ooh, that one ter you know, that went badly. What could we do? Um, simulation when you're testing out, like, well, I could do this or, or not, or I could do this where you sort of like do it like a dry run of a move without actually doing it. Um, algorithm building where you basically just construct that, you know, plan of action. 
and then finally distributed processing where basically everyone's kind of pitching in their different ideas. And so I thought, I think it's, you know, really relevant, especially for analog games, for tabletop games. Because when you have, especially in co-op games, all the players working together and planning out moves that take, you know, that will need multiple turns, you know, to execute, that's where you have the demonstration of these computational skills. So even if you're working with younger kids, you know, and you could just obviously do, you know, Forbidden Island or something like that, by articulating this out with them as they do it or having them play the game and then see how they're putting all those different things together, you're getting them to shift their minds from, we're just playing a game to really thinking about those specific skills as a way to build, you know, their knowledge base in terms of computational thinking. Hmm. So what I'm seeing is that I probably should have contacted them. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically Uh, the cooperative play as a form of parallel processing. I think that's really interesting. I, I like that sort of formulation of it in terms of extending it. And, you know, I mean, going one step further, you could almost say that, teaching game de- the, the game design and the act of game design it, it itself is a sort of a substitute or parallel for you know computational thinking it requires computational thinking you know cuz certainly one of the case one of the things you're always doing when programming is thinking about edge cases and you know what it, what happens if this is a exactly equal instead of you know smaller or bigger or whatever and things like that and when you're doing a game design and you're sitting down and, you know, thinking up the rules and what happens in this case, you have to, you have to do that a ton. There's, there's a lot of that Uh involved. It's so, you know, just the act of going through and designing a game kind of pushes people into those sorts of decisions that are often, uh, or thought processes that you often have when, uh, uh, when, when programming as well of breaking, making things just smaller steps for the players. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you saw what I was going to say next, because that was my question is, is, is with games, you've got a whole bunch of aspects, you know, playing the game, learning the game, well, probably in a reverse order, though not always, um, or, and designing games, which is, is something that we've done at the library, though not to the extent that apparently either one of you have done that, you know, are there any other elements for, you know, computational thought exercises in games? Uh, you know, I mean, is, would you say if you were, if you were having, uh, someone do a review of a game or try to explain and teach the game that that would be the same kind of process or at least a complementary skill set? Or is it, is all of the playing and the designing? Well, I mean, just as a limited exercise, I, I think just having people write rules for a game that they know or that somebody else taught them or whatever, I think is, is, is a, a very good way to have people approach things logically and be able to, you know, break it down into discrete steps, but just, Oh, like the peanut butter, the peanut butter sandwich thing. Yeah. How to make, how to make a peanut butter sandwich. Well, you know what else you could do is you could take, say, a game like Hopscotch, and this would be one that you could, you know, draw out or use tape on the floor of the library, you know, to make a little, you know, Hopscotch sort of um, ladder and have kids write out, their instructions for that since it's something that they know they don't have to create the game and write the rules for it so let's say that they land on the x and or on the eight for example and eight says like hop two squares forward or something you know like or they, they put in different rules to it into hopscotch so that as they're actually playing the game you know they have those sorts of like if then sorts of things or you give them choices where they could you know hop to this one or hop to that one or something like that so you could take a really simple structure like that 
and then have them write those rules for it. And they could really kind of play with those sorts, you know, the different types of like flow processes, depending on, you know, like loops and, you know, if then statements, all those sorts of things you could build into a game like hopscotch and then have them write the rules for it. And then they would be, you know, literally programming with their bodies, um, but they would still be developing those rules. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side of this, though, I think, which which I found really interesting in, in a negative way is, um, so I, as I said, I've done computer programming. So when I design the first game, my first game, board game, um, the Ares Project, I did not think that writing rules was going to be a problem for me. I was just, I said, look, I, it's basically taking the game, explaining it logically, breaking it down into a series of discrete steps and telling the players what to do at each step. So I wrote the rules and from a logical standpoint, they were all very consistent and, you know, went from one to the next to the next, but they were basically completely incomprehensible and very difficult to learn. Um, okay. So I, I, I have learned the hard way that, you know, the, act of writing rules is way more complicated than people think it's going to be. Um, and that's why I think it might be an interesting exercise. Cause I, I guarantee you that, you know, if you have students writing a set of rules, even for a game that they really know, they're going to leave stuff out. There's going to be holes. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when my students write rules, it's, you know, the last major part of their project that we do. And these are games that they've been working on for weeks. These are games that they've gone through multiple iterations of, and when they write the rules, you know, like for moving, you know, players can move one to two spaces. And it's like, okay, well, what are you leaving out? No, no, no. And then, well, can you share a space? Can you do this? Can you do this? Oh, yeah, you know. So, I mean, that's just when they think the hard part's done in terms of getting their game to kind of that last final stage that it will be, at least in my classroom. Yes, adding on rules is a whole other layer of frustration. Some students love it. Some students really, really enjoy rule writing and they'll turn, you know, the three page, you know, kind of outline I give them into these, you know, 10 page, you know, wonders with illustrations and graphics and other kids. It's just absolutely pulling teeth because to be specific, you know, as far as an exact about what can happen is really, really difficult for them. But on the other hand, I think that a lot of games nowadays, or at least I've seen several several examples recently that I really enjoy, is that they have a fairly rich game experience, but the actual rules are fairly short and abbreviated. Because if you look at Century Spice Road, there's a front and a back on a rules page, but a lot of the well, – all the cards say, oh, here's the rule for when you play this card. And so they've broken that down. And you look at Concordia, which is, you know, a game that I've really come to enjoy more and more the more I play it, that, you know, a lot the instructions for how to play the game are pretty straightforward. And then you have the cards. Once again, they've broken down the rules in such a way that you don't have to know everything to feel like you understand the game. And you can still be uh, surprised, annoyed, enlightened, you know, excited by what you see when the cards flip up. And what you'll have the chance to buy to add into your hand or what your opponents just stole right out from under you so that they've then created their new set of options that they can play and do in the game. And I think that that's pr a pretty neat element of, hey, how are we breaking down and chunking information so that people can only worry about it when they're worrying about it? Hmm. 
Yeah. And that's, that's a whole other, that could be a whole other show talking about rules and, and really information hiding from players and making it easy, giving them an easy on-ramp into the game. Cause that's certainly, that's always an issue between board games and video games is it's a lot easier to, there's an expectation now that people can just jump in and start playing because of video games are so good at doing that. And, and board games are still learning techniques to try to make that leap. And that's, that's a great one of them is taking the rules and just sticking them on a hundred different cards. So you only see the ones that you need to deal with when you need to deal with them. Yeah. You know, this is something that, that board games has actually been doing since cosmic encounter, right? That the, the basic rules for cosmic encounter seem pretty straightforward. And then you break the rules or abuse the rules or bend them to your will, depending on which cards you're playing. But we weren't presenting, I think the rule books in such a way that streamlined it the way that we're doing now. Yeah. Well, I mean, video games are always going to have the advantage that you can have characters move and bounce up and down and, you know, point on the screen where something is or have you do something in sort of like a tutorial sort of way so you get the the basics of it. And I think especially, you know, we're going to see more and more of a push towards, yes, there's a rule book, but, you know, people will want, you know, direct links to here's instructions for the game, you know, um, the era of, you know, you know, DVD, you know, CDs and DVDs is sort of past us, but, you know, in terms of QR codes and everything like that, or what's the one Kickstarter was like D- diced or whatever, um, like a website that's designed to teach games. Um, I remember it was one that I saw that Jamie Stegmeier was, um, yeah. supporting cause they did that for Scythe, but, you know, so to have much more content to support games out there so that pe- people don't have to read the rules, I think is, you know, sort of problematic in some ways, but also I think that's just going to be the expectation because if they don't want to get through the rules, they're not going to play the game, even if they're beautifully written. Right. Or, or a game like Flux where, hey, the rule is draw one and play one and, and we'll sort of tell you how to play the game as it happens. Or Stronghold has that new line of games where you can jump right in, which mm-hmm. we will be doing a blog post on for games in schools and libraries about, uh, you know, here are some games that you can just get involved in. Mm-hmm. Which I guess sort of, uh, you know, looks back at what Jeffrey just said about, you know, the expectation is that people can just play. Right. Well, and I think one thing when it comes to this as far as computational thinking, you know, this past week of when we're recording this episode, um, last week was the net neutrality vote um, and the FCC deciding to change rules as it relates to net neutrality. I teach at a middle school. Um, our technology teacher had kids coming in saying, can we please watch the vote live on TV? And just walking around, you know, it was just in my classroom, kids asking questions about it, hearing kids talk about it as I was walking through the schools. I mean, the thing to remember is for these kids, they expect the world to be interactive. Um, our tech guy has um, toddlers. And I said, how is it different for them growing up as opposed to when we did? And he said they went to some sort of like dentist office or something and there was a big flat screen TV mounted fairly low and his daughter went up to it and just started touching the screen expecting it to come awake and for her to be able to start doing things and she's it was I think three or four years old you know so I think when it comes to computational thinking and teaching programming teaching coding this is a whole literacy that 
I think as adults, it's easier for us to be behind on, or we remember the good old days, or, you know, we're fine with relatively low levels of technology integration. But for kids, this is the world they live on. This is the world they live in. And, you know, when kids have to disconnect themselves from their world to come into a traditional school and do traditional, you know, book and paper kind of things, there's not anything wrong with that necessarily, because, you know, books and paper have been around a long time, and hopefully they will be as well as a librarian, I'm sure you agree to that. But if we can't teach and prepare these kids, not in a feel-good sort of way, but in a real way of being able to, you know, negotiate this world, both in terms of having the skills in order to do programming and coding and understanding that, but also sort of like the digital citizenship um, aspect to this in terms of being able to live inside this world where they share so much out, out with each other and how to process that. Like, we've never had this point in, you know, human development. This is as fundamental as the Industrial Revolution in terms of how this is changing the world, how this is, you know, happening. And we're seeing this happen over just a few little generations. Very, very quickly, this change is happening. So when it comes to, you know, teaching computational thinking, teaching programming, teaching coding, it's not a benefit as much as we're teaching survival skills for these kids for the future. Teaching them how to make the future. Yeah, and how to live in it, how to negotiate it, how to navigate it. Yeah, I think that's um, I, I 100% agree with that. I think that it's it's a critical skill set. I think that some of it is just sort of learned through osmosis, and you know, some of it certainly needs to be taught. And I think games are a great way to do that. Well, all right, so let's loop back around to sort of what we hit a little bit earlier and as we head towards the end. What uh, kinds of games, like name a couple of games that you think sort of epitomize a neat way of of teaching some of this uh, computational thinking or even programming literacy, anything in that kind of category. What, what are some of the games you'd recommend that our listeners look towards for that kind of support? So I, I've got a couple of... Uh games I jotted down here, some of which may, may be a little bit off the beaten track, but um, I, I think that they, they fit the bill. Um, one, which is if Robo Rally is too complicated for people, that I think is a simpler programming game, um, is uh, Volt, Robot Arena, uh, from Emerson Matsuuchi, yeah. which is you still program robots and you shoot at the other robots and things like that and you run around, but um, it's you just roll some dice and put those on a little grid to show how your robots, what your robot's going to do. So it's a lot easier for people to visualize. You don't have to plan super far into the future and worry about facing and stuff like that. So I would definitely recommend that one as an easier entry point to something like Robo Rally. Um, another another one, um, which is a, a sort of a different sort of thinking approach, but I, I think uh, still you know fits in with this idea of you know making plans and programming and, th- and kind of trying to picture what's going to happen as things roll forward in the future of the steps that you put in there is this game called Darter which was later um redone as Dragons of Kier um I don't know, are either of you guys familiar with this uh, with this game these games okay so I am not. They're they're probably tough to find, so it's probably not a great recommendation. But Darter was um, basically you were firing these little darts at the other player. It's just a two-player game. Um, And um, they move 
every turn, all the darts on the board move one space forward. But then all you do on your turn is you put stuff on the boards like magnets and fans and trampolines and stuff like that. So you're trying to redirect all of the darts um, so that they hit your opponent's base and not your base. Um, hmm. So it's kind of like a Rube Goldberg. You end up setting up these Rube Goldberg machines, but they start simple. And then they, you know, as you put more and more stuff on the board, they get more and more complicated. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty nifty. Cause like I said, you got to kind of picture in your head, what's, how all this stuff is going to interact with each with itself and what you can add to it to, uh, to kind of interrupt the way these darts are going to be programmed to move because they're, it's all deterministic how they move. Um, so, so that's an, an interesting and visually, very visually striking game as well when you play it. Um, and the last one is a, a one that just came out from Ape Games, um, which is called Major General Duel of Time, uh, which I know because mm-hmm. it was designed and released by uh, some students from my NYU class. Um, so that's why I'm going to plug this game because I played it a lot before it was published. Uh, and it's a really nifty, again, it's a little two player game. And, um, what you do, it's, it's going to be a little bit difficult to describe, but basically the board is just a, a, a it's a row of five areas, um, just in a line. Um, and the ones closer to you are worth less to you and more to your opponent and vice versa. You want to try to take the territories that are closer to your opponent's home base. Um, but on your turn, you ha- you have a hand of cards and each card is split into two sections and it has, um, one of two possible things in it, like push or deploy or rally. And, and all of those do different things with cubes that are in these different areas. So that you move cubes around basically, and you're trying to get a majority of cubes in an area to control it and score those points. But what you do is you lay these cards down and they're kind of oversized cards. So when you put a card down next to the board, I said that the, the card is divided in half into two orders. So one of the orders is facing you and one is facing your opponent and you have to put them down. So it's next to two regions on the board. And then you execute all of these orders from your side of the board going across, uh, going over to the other side. And if it, the order is facing you, you get to do it. If it's facing your opponent, they get to do it. And every card that you place is going to, one side's going to face you and one side's going to face your opponent. And then as you go, you, you, as you put more cards down, you can cover up the old cards. And, you know, there's some actions that you can kind of force on your opponent that messes them up because maybe they, you have to do the action. So maybe they have to move something out of a region that they don't want to. So it makes you think about, again, these, these orders are all executed in steps. And they're executed in different directions. So on your turn, it goes from your side to the other side. On your opponent's turn, it's going to go from their side across to your side, executing all the orders. And um, I feel like I'm not really doing a great job describing it, but it very much uh, hits those same kind of feelings of you have to, you know, think about ex- exactly the steps that you can do. And you can do clever things to um, to kind of interrupt your opponent's orders. And, but you have to think sequentially because everything is going to just operate in a very predefined order of what it is. So, um, so that's, that's three games that I think. And, and how long has Major General Duel of Time been out? I think it's been out a month. Just came out. Yeah. Oh, so okay. It was released, I think, just after Oral Games. So, yeah, that was pretty exciting. It's, it seems like I've heard someone talking about it. Did, did you mention it on Ludology already? Yeah. I'm not sure if I mentioned it on Ludology. I know it was, um, mentioned i know that um the dice tower did a review of it i think z garcia did a video on it mm. um but it's it's possible that i mentioned it 
I don't recall. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's, I, I think it definitely fits the bill of teaching this, these kind of computational thinking skills. Nice. Uh, Kathleen, how about you? Well, the one that I'm thinking of, especially for, you know, just programmed action sorts, um, that my students really, really enjoy is river dragons. Um, and the nice thing with this one too is it's not just, you know, playing the cards as far as the actions you want to take because, you know, you can cancel each other out. There's a little bit of that, you know, kind of mess with each other stuff with the dragon cards, but they're physically building you know, uh, their planks, you know, as they try to cross the river. So you've got the, you know, the programmed action with their cards, but also that physical, you know, sort of building. But then when other people's planks overlap them, they're allowed to sort of, you know, you know, change their sort of intended path, you know, and takes a different path. But then also too, you know, something bad can happen and they can't, you know, execute the remainder of their, of their steps. And so the one that I would say, you know, and side benefit, um, a good number of my students are, um, Chinese and they do, and it does come with Chinese rules. So they're always very excited, um, to read the rules for that in Chinese as well. So there's an additional benefit. Um, but yeah, uh, River Dragons was the one that I was going to suggest, um, as far as a programmed action game, um, that's good for kids, especially kids, you know, um, like teach middle school. So they love it. It's one of their favorites. Hmm. That's that's pretty cool. Um, I have not actually played River Dragons, so yeah, it's you know everyone has a set of cards and they you know program out what they want to do and you know that sort of thing. So it's not too. Um, I think it used to be called River Delta, perhaps. I think it had addition. Yeah, I think I have that version. It's where you put out little stones and there are these planks of different yeah. lengths and stuff. Yeah, Dragon Delta, yes. Dragon Delta. That's what it was called. Yes. Yes. Dragon that's Delta. A yeah, that's, little game. that's correct. That's ah. correct. Okay, I've seen pictures, and I think I've seen it being played, but mm-hmm. I, I've not actually, not actually played it myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, so when we were talking about Robo Rally earlier, um, Mark Selmeyer, uh, he's uh, my boyfriend that I was talking about. He designed a game um, and came out with Rio Grande, you know, six seven years ago. Now I think called Spin Monkeys. And it's really funny because, you know, it's very different, you know, that it's not quite programmed action. You can move your little monkey in the bumper car based on the number of cards in front of you. And the, the, the last card you play is the one where it has a degree of rotation that you turn and everything. But it's kind of funny because it has some aspects of Robo Rally, not necessarily related to the programming side of things, but just that, you know, everything moves at once and everything's sort of crashing together. And we were talking about this and I said, it's like the grandson of Robo Rally, but he just, you know, loved the system so much that in some ways sort of internalized some of it and it just sort of came out, you know, in a very different expression with uh, Spin Monkeys. But, but that's one too that has, um, some sort of programming as far as like when you're turning different degrees. And then if you like the idea of like high interaction of things crashing into each other and then like flying all over the place, as far as if you want, you know, something that plays like Robo Rally, but in a shorter amount of time. Yes, he's the love of my life, but it will plug uh, Spin Monkeys as something for people to look into for that as well. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're, if we're just, just, just picking stuff that I like that kind of relates to it, <laughs> yeah. um, then then I like the Great Space Race, uh, mm, which is kind of like Robo Rally with spaceships and blowing things up and weird paths and, and you know, you set things up like that. Yeah. And, and I think Robo Rally is, you know, it is the obvious go-to choice. Um, but if you set the scenarios up right, and now that you have each person having their own individual decks, um, that that you could set up scenarios that um, that sort of work better. And 
actually all this discussion about six years ago, I was working on a game called Go Go Gollum, where you were programming golems to go and and do oh. stuff in a laboratory. I was hoping um, it was a dancer in a club, but okay. Um, well, you know, <laughs> sure, we could change that. And put it in a nice dress and heels, and it'll be wonderful. But now it's made me want to start working on that. Uh, but recently, we had the uh, the fine folks over at Think Fun Games send copies to the library of their uh, their code games, and actually, I guess they're really more puzzle kits than they are code than they are games. Mm-hmm. And it's the slash slash code they've got on the break brink rover control and uh, uh, the last one's what robot repair. And I've only gotten to do. Uh, the one where you are moving the robot around, which is kind of a, uh, uh, it's closest, I guess, would be to Robo Rally, except where they have different blocks of code that you're saying, oh, here's the blue block or the red block or the orange block, and they're only going to trigger depending on where your robot is on the map. And you are trying to navigate your robot using, um, whatever set of things they say, here's what you have this time. Now program your robot to move from location to location. And we set all three of these things up at the library and we put up a leaderboard because we had it up. We had them all out for a day or two and the kids kind of didn't pay attention to them. And they're like, well, whatever, we're going to go shoot, you know, aliens on the computers. And then we put up a leaderboard and now there's lines of people waiting to sort of go through and play them. Oh, that's Um, fantastic. And all it is is what's the highest level? We're not keeping time. Um, We're just verifying if they've solved the puzzles correctly. And then they're adding one to their maximum level that they've achieved. And uh, they've had just a whole lot of fun going through on all three of these. And I think Stephanie and I are going to uh, give fairly in-depth reviews on them here shortly and probably do, you know, blog posting on them because they so closely fit the kinds of stuff that we want to do. But they're not games so much as they are, like I said, puzzles. Uh, Yeah, But I think it's a place for that. Yeah, you'd look. You'd put together a list of um, suggested games, and I was sort of looking through like Codemaster, sort of looking online through what these games are about. Codemaster, um, Code Monkey Island, and um, Code Monkey Island seems to be a little bit more interactive. Um, Codemaster definitely tends looks a little bit more um, of a puzzle game. And um, a few summers ago, when I was teaching gifted kids through Northwestern University up in Chicago. Um, they wanted to have a sort of very early beginning coding sort of class, and we did Robot Turtles. And and I think – and I have a copy of um, C-Jump, which is a game designed to teach um, C programming. And, you know, one of the problems sometimes in, you know, in board games, you can sort of collapse and bend the rules of science and society. And one of the reasons why education games tend not to be as fun is because – you can't necessarily do that. Um, John Covey, what he does with Genius Games, I think, is a notable exception. He's really good at making good games about um, things while still keeping them accurate. But I think <laughs> um, sometimes with these games, they either tend to be more puzzle-based, you know, even if they are a game for multiple people, you know, for Robot Turtles, there was a lot of where you start in the center and worked your ways out into the corners. And I think for kids, in some ways, that makes sense because, you know, you want them to, you know, get the programming and the coding right and if they're just smashing into each other you know robo rally style that might become more frustrating for them than not talking about uh, robot turtles really quick is it's like an ages four and up game yes so oh, yes 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 you go you go there's no game here it's not really a game you're right you're right uh and so it works very well for what it does which right. is people are playing the tiles down and then you have the teacher or the instructor or whoever it is is moving them and people can say oh wait that's not what i wanted to do and recall their their move or what have you it works very well for that um, 
And Code Monkey Island, I think it says ages eight or ten and up on the on the box, and that's a big old lie. That if you get a ten year old playing it who's still inter- entertained, I think that the that that they just you know they're not into games at all yet. Uh, but you could easily play Code Monkey Island with ages six and up as long as someone was helping them, you know, parse the if then statements that go through. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a deep game. Basically, it's sorry or aggravation. But with cards that are if then statements instead of you know uh, candy land colors or whatever, right? So, but any oh, and so the uh, speaking real quick about the 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 uh, think fun games. One of them is uh, it, it looks like I haven't actually played through all three of them yet, but it looks like it's an engineering gateway puzzle of you know these both have to be on or off. You know, and so you're going through and you're solving a problem and it's, it's, you're trying to figure out what the state of the board will be for like circuits or something. It looks mm-hmm. pretty neat. Um, I will talk more about it later once I've had a chance to actually play it as opposed to simply flip through it. Um, but I'm just pleased that the people are making all of these kinds of fun games because one of the things things fun did is they did a circuit, um, you know, a actual making circuits game where you, it would light up lights and stuff like that. So. Uh, lots of stuff going on in this in this whole category of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think and yeah, I mean, it's and just like anything else, you know, the games will hopefully continue to get better and better, and you know, integrate you know these concepts into something that's you know fun to play and more challenging to play. I mean, programming is tough, you know, so to gamify it, you know, that's quite the challenge. And so right. I'm glad for even for these sort of beginner basic sorts of games because of nothing else you can use this to illustrate something and then immediately put kids on the computer and then have them try it in a different function and you know using technology and i think that can help them to close that gap better right so i'd like to con- uh, encourage our listeners to let us know what games you might use to uh, inform or teach students or reinforce ideas of computational thinking or programming or both uh, and you know, let us know both on the guild or on our Facebook group or anything like that. Um, but before I do our end of show, uh, would you all please let our listeners know where you can be found wandering the wilds of the internet? Uh, Mr. Engelstein. Yeah. So I am, uh, on Twitter at G Engelstein or at G E N G E L S D E I N. Um, you can also find me on, uh, ludology.net. If you go to our website there, it's got uh, my email contact as, as well as my Twitter address. So those, those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. And Kathleen? Um, well, you can find my um, all my game design teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.net. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury with seven M's. So Mercury. And I'm on BGG. Marvelous. <laughs> it's delicious. Just delicious. Oh, no. Um, and then uh, you can also find me on PGG as Funk Donut. Um, I'm often in the Games in the Classroom forum, posting and reading things there. All right. And I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me wandering the wilds of the internet as Walsfio. Um, also, sometimes I tweet as Onboard Games. Thank you for listening to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries, a podcast produced in association between Inverse Genius and the Georgetown County Library System. For more information about the show and the people who create it, you can head over to InverseGenius.com and also find out more about our other podcasts like Onboard Games, On RPGs, On Miniatures Games, The Inverse Genius Podcast, and The Room Escape Divas. 
If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible. 